already a great morning now celebrating the Lord's death and what it means for us and singing together with you. Um, soul is already charged up. It's what a great time already. I'm going to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 9 and we'll pray and then we'll get into our text this morning. Would you pray with me before we open up the Scriptures? Uh, Lord, uh, you and you alone can illumine the true meaning of the text this morning. We come with false ideas that we are not even aware about. Uh, we come with ideas that have crept into our thinking that we're not even, uh, we don't even know they're there. Uh, assumptions that we have. And apart from the Holy Spirit shining like a flashlight into the dark corners of our mind, we, we will not see these areas. We will not be able to address them and we will not be able to grow. And so we ask, Lord, for your Spirit's work right now in our hearts and our minds and our thinking to illumine the text of Scripture to us this morning. We are utterly dependent upon you. We pray that distractions would be set aside, that your word would be front and center, that we would encounter the message you have for us this morning, and so be changed. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're in John chapter 9. Sorry, not John. Where did John come from? I don't know why I said John. I guess chapter 9, verse 38, John is the first word in Mark 9, 38, but I don't know why I said John. So turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 9, and we're going to look at one verse. It's going to be verse 42, and as you're turning there, let's introduce the idea of the topic this morning, the point of the text this morning. And I want to do that by asking you to imagine with me a church member named, let's call him Hank. That's your name, I'm sorry. Hank won't miss a doctor's appointment, but regularly will miss church. Hank meticulously cares for his health, exercises daily, eats well. He doesn't take as much care of his soul. His Bible reading is sporadic, prayer life nearly non-existent. Hank is passionate about his favorite sports teams, and he could list to you all the players on the roster and all the statistics of each player. He hasn't worked on memorizing a passage of Scripture probably since elementary school. He meditates for sure, but his meditations are most on his work, his career, his future retirement, not on God, his word, or God's will for his life. Hank is focused on his career, and he's busy, and it's a regular excuse for him to not really be so involved in the lives of his fellow church members. He's engaged in politics and government, and his pastor wishes he was as engaged in the church as he was with those things. Hank believes in the doctrine of sin, but is quick to defend himself if ever confronted with any sin issue in his own life. Let's pretend you've gotten to know Frank. Let's pretend that did I say Frank? Hank. Oh, my goodness. Sorry, Frank. 
is, this is not you. There are, there are Franks here. I don't mean to offend them. This is going to be a rough one. Hang, hang in there with me. Frank, Hank. All right. Let's, let's say you've gotten to know Hank, this, this imaginary, imaginary person. And he's professed to be a Christian for a long time. He's got his theology down pretty good. There's no big scandal obvious in his life. No big sin issue that's there at the surface that you see. But you do sense that something's missing. He's gradually becoming less engaged. He seems to be flirting with worldliness in subtle ways. There seems to be a lack of spiritual vibrancy characterizes other Christians you know. But it's not enough to really sound the alarm. It's just enough to grab your attention. And you are concerned. You're concerned. So you're in this situation. Should somebody say something to Hank? Who should say something? Do we hope that he just kind of figures it out? You know, self-corrects? The direction and the trajectory he's going isn't really good, but who are you to, to say anything? To, to get involved? I mean, wouldn't that be nosy of you? Isn't that just Hank being Hank? Or, are we in any way responsible for what's going on, this drift that appears to be happening in his life? And that might lead us to some deeper questions. How much responsibility do church members have for one another? How much do you have for your brother or sister who's been attending and taking communion with you and you've been committed to each other from, for some time and you've watched them live? How much should their struggles concern you? How much should their sins be your problem? Is it really something you ought to care about? Or should you just let those things go and pray for him and think about him often? Looking at that situation from another angle, what does your personal Christian life have to do with the lives of other Christians around you? Anything at all? Do you need to take the thoughts, the sensibilities, the needs and concerns and sins and struggles of other Christians around you into consideration as you live your Christian life? Do you agree with the author who critiques the modern way typical American Christians think about the church when he said, if you're a Christian living in a Western democracy, chances are, you need to change the way you think about your church and how you are connected to it. Most likely, you underestimate your church. You belittle it. You misshape it in a way that misshapes your Christianity. It's a strong statement, isn't it? He goes on to explain what is the problem that we often have as we think about our relationship to the church. He says, the basic disease is the assumption that we have the authority to conduct our own Christian lives 
on our own. We include the church piece when and where we please. Let me unpack kind of what he's saying. He's saying the typical American church member has a distorted way of viewing the church that has led to a distorted way of him viewing his own Christian life. And the basic fundamental problem he identifies is that we believe that we are not accountable to anyone or accountable for anyone. That it's me and Jesus. We're following Him. And it's not really our responsibility to be concerned about the struggles and the issues and the pains and the ups and the downs and the joys and the sorrows of those church members around us. That kind of responsibility is the optional add-on for the super-Christian. You know, the one who really wants to be uh, over the top, you know, take this thing real seriously. Well, they can care about one another. But the average Christian following Jesus, you know, if you don't need the church, then, you know, just do it on your own. That's sometimes the mindset. And so do you think that reading the Bible and studying it, that it would lead you to take more responsibility for more Christians around you? Or that it would lead you to take less responsibility? Let them do what they do. You be you. I'll do what I do. And we'll cross paths at church on Sunday. But I'm not going to get into your business. I'm going to let you kind of do your thing as I do mine. The text we're going to look at this morning will give us a little bit of a corrective to that way of thinking. The way of thinking that considers the Christian life kind of from one angle is the me and Jesus thing, the Lone Ranger mentality. And it helps us correct that misshaped view of the church and how we are to consider these other people that God has put around us. Remember that author made that claim that there's a mistaken way, a misshaped way of considering the church that actually misshapes our own Christianity. And if that's the case, that's a pretty serious claim that we would want to address, right? We would want to correct that. And so we're going to look at one verse and unpack it so that we can understand what Jesus intends for us as we think about our responsibilities toward other Christians. Verse 42 of Mark, not John, in case you were confused. Mark chapter 9, verse 42. Here's what Jesus says. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin... It would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. We'll stop there for now. Exegete that one. Apply it a little bit. And next week we'll get more into the details of what Jesus goes on to teach about the necessity of aggressive sanctification. But this morning I just want to look at the one verse in verse 42. Jesus' statement about Causing others who believe in Him to sin. I want you to look with me at the, uh, the kind of surrounding verses here for a little bit. You see in verses 33 to 37, let's just remind ourselves what's happening there. That's when the disciples begin arguing about who's the greatest. Remember that? We talked about that a, a few weeks ago. That they're arguing about who's the greatest just after Jesus had mentioned that He's going to be the one who suffers and dies. And Jesus has to correct them and call them to live like servants, live as humble servants of all, of others. And look at verse 37. He ends with a whoever statement. And we're going to see 
that in our little section here, there are three different whoever statements that we got to understand. First, whoever statements in verse 37, when he says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. In other words, when you demonstrate receiving love, hospitable love, you invite someone into your life for the name of Christ, you do this, it's as if you're receiving Jesus himself. That's what Jesus is saying. So rather than trying to promote yourself and climb the ladder and be on top of everyone else as the greatest among them, that Jesus says, no, be the lowest and serve others in Jesus' name for him. And when you do that, Jesus takes that service as if it's being offered to him. And then you get to this next section in verses 38 to 41. And in this section, we talked about a couple weeks ago, it's where the disciples see this other man that's casting out demons. And he's doing it in the name of Christ. And John, there in verse 38, says, Teacher, this guy's casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him. And Jesus basically has to correct the disciples and tell them, Hey, no, you don't want to stop this guy. And there's another whoever statement. There's another whoever statement that comes there. Truly I say to you, whoever, this is 41, gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. And so the first whoever statement, whoever receives receives a little one in my name receives me. Whoever gives even just a small act of service like a cup of water to someone because they belong to Christ Uh, God sees that and values that and will reward that. And now, you get to verse 42, and those two statements previously are kind of a positive, you know, encouragement to be serving others. A, A positive encouragement to be blessing others, receiving others, showing hospitality to others. To give to others as if you're giving to Christ Himself and to do so for the glory of God. Now he presents in verse 42 kind of a negative example, an extreme uh, warning for those who are not willing to give and serve and help others. He now issues a threat. And he tells them, whoever, there it is again, causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and you were thrown into the sea. So he's still talking with the disciples, and I think it's actually most helpful to look at verse 42 and see it as attached to the previous section rather than the section that follows. Even though this, the whole idea is what uh, we should do with our sin, it's all connected, but I do think he's kind of concluding this whole idea of how we relate to other believers, how we relate to serving them, uh, how we relate to humbling ourselves before them, giving to them. And then here in verse 42, how we ought to think about the seriousness of causing them to stumble. And the context makes it even more clear. It's as if Jesus has you know, observed these guys. They're trying to stop this guy from casting out demons. Uh, he, he, this guy's been successfully casting out demons. Here come the disciples trying to stop him from doing a legitimate ministry. And Jesus is, it's as if he wants to say, hey, listen, you're trying to discourage this guy from doing ministry in my name? You, you need to realize how serious a crime that is. To discourage a fellow believer such that he is thinking about stopping his ministry and giving up the good work he's doing, you've got to stop and pause and consider the weightiness, the seriousness of the sin that it is 
to stop another believer from doing what God has called them to do. So let's get into the exegesis of this passage. We're going to draw from the passage. We're going to look at the words. We're going to see the meaning here. Let's start, and then we're going to apply toward the end. Let's look at verse 42, the first word, whoever. Whoever. An open word. This is a word, obviously, includes the disciples. It would include the Pharisees, and they would certainly be guilty of doing this. And it skips through the centuries, and it touches us this morning, doesn't it? That whoever includes me and whoever includes you. So you are part of the whoever here. So you ought to read yourself right into this text and understand that you, if you are guilty of this, that this is a serious crime and that you are in danger if you continue in a pathway where you're living out this sin. Whoever causes, he goes on to say, one of these little ones who believe in me, let's pause and just who are they? I don't think he's merely talking about children. Based in the context here, the previous section, and the parallel passages in Matthew, what he's talking about are other believers. Other believers who know Christ. Jesus often refers to his disciples as little children, those who trust him as his little children. So he's not just talking about kids. He's talking about grown-ups as well. He's talking about anyone who, in humble faith, is trusted in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. So whoever causes one of these other Christians, these other believers, in me to sin. Let's take a look at that word for a second. What does that mean? Maybe some of you have studied Greek and you've encountered different words for the idea of sin in the Bible. Um, and maybe you've studied in your systematic theology book the, the section labeled hamartiology. And that word comes from hamartia, the doctrine of sin. Hamartia means sin. It's maybe one of the most commonly used words for sin. And yet, as I read this and I looked into the original language, I realized that's not the word that's being used here. It's not talking about sin in general. Hamartia is a very general idea of sin. This is a more specific word. The Greek word that's translated here, sin, is skandalizo. What does that sound like? Scandal. Okay? Talking about a scandal here, it refers to a more specific kind of sin. It's referring to the, the kind of sin that is uh, a sliding into unbelief, a kind of moral failure, a, a sin of accepting a false teaching, of sliding, slipping away, of moral compromise, of doubting what God has said is true, which is why, and I think the NASB, the New American Standard Bible, is probably the better translation here, it goes with the word stumble. It's the idea of putting a stumbling block in, the front, front, in front of someone. It's causing someone to be tripped up. It's causing someone to not be so sure about what they ought to do anymore as they walk with the Lord. The, the CSB translates the same word to fall away. It's the idea of you're following in the right path, but something comes along and so distracts you or so discourages you, so misleads you, that you're no longer following on the straight and narrow. You just begin to drift off to the side. You begin to go a different direction. You are misled, and now suddenly you're not on the straight and narrow anymore. Suddenly you're going an entirely different direction. That's the idea here. It's, in other words, I, I think the, 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 the ESV that translates it's sin, it's obviously it's true, it is a sin, but it is a more specific kind of sin. It's not just talking about any kind of sin. He's talking about the kind of sin that would cause your brother in Christ or your sister in Christ to start wondering if the Bible's true or start wondering if faithfulness is best, to start doubting what God has said, to start wondering if holiness is worth pursuing, to start casting down on the value of what God has said is valuable. Those kinds of things. That if you live a life that begins influencing people to go away from Christ and His Word, 
that you would be causing someone to participate in this kind of stumbling, this kind of sin. So the disciples' opposition to this other believer who had been casting out demons might have been so discouraging that man. Put put yourself in, in that man's shoes. You're doing good work. You're casting out demons. You're seeing people delivered. You're seeing them uh, uh, set free from the demonic oppression. And then you get these disciples of Jesus who show up and start telling you you shouldn't stop or you shouldn't cast out any more demons. You should stop that ministry. I wonder if they were discouraged. It's almost as if he goes, man, Jesus' followers are harsh. Like I was just trying to help some people. And here they show up all proud, acting hypocritical, telling me I can't serve him. And it's as if Jesus wants to say, hey guys, listen up. Do you realize how serious a sin that you're committing, that you are discouraging a brother from doing the work that I have called him to do? You realize how much a crime that is against God and against me to stop him, to discourage him? And perhaps what's going on right there is that man who's, maybe I should not follow Jesus at all. I mean, if this is what the disciples are like, coming barging in and telling me I shouldn't act this way, I shouldn't do this ministry, maybe, maybe I shouldn't follow Jesus at all. And what a serious crime that would be. And Jesus would say, listen, if you cause my little one, my precious children to stumble, to fall away, to be discouraged, so as to give up following me or to stop serving me, to be distracted in serving me, then here's, here's how serious I want you to know that is. He goes, it would be better for him of a great millstone. The Greek literally says a donkey's millstone. And English speakers would not get what he's talking about because what's a donkey's millstone? But that's literally what it says. It's a donkey's millstone. It's referring to a, um, you had at home you know, kitchen-sized millstones where you could use, and you could use this kind of, basketball-sized stone, and you'd turn it around, and you'd crush the grain. You could use that for your purposes. But if you wanted to do that on a mass scale, you get this big old round rock that could only really be moved by a beast, and you'd get your donkey, and it'd walk in circles, and it would crush the wheat so you could get it on a more massive scale. You'd get a lot quicker. These were massive stones. The disciples would have been familiar with them because that was what was used in, in these days to get your food. And so they knew exactly what he's talking about. This is a donkey's millstone. He's saying, here, if you could, if you're going to cause someone who's following me to sin, it would be better for you to see that, you know, that millstone, a giant hundreds of pounds of rock to get that tied to your neck and to have that thing tossed into the ocean and you to be taken along with it and to sink down to the bottom of the sea. That would be a better fate for you than to go on doing what you're doing to continue stopping my precious little ones who believe in me and causing them to stumble. We mentioned this last week. Uh, Jesus is trying to uh, raise their awareness of the seriousness of their crimes here and what they have done. I just want to ask you, like, think about this. Imagine there's two doors before you, right? On door one, you have cause a believer to stumble. And on door two, you have the millstone treatment. Which would you be more afraid to enter? I think most of us would go, man, I'm not going into the millstone treatment room. I don't want that. I'll, I'll, I'll go into the cause of believer to stumble room, and I'll just ask for forgiveness. Just, you know, I'll cause the little one to stumble, and then I'll just pray, I'll fix things, and, 
you know, bygones be bygones, let's move on. And Jesus would say, you've chosen the wrong room. Because I don't think you understand the gravity of the seriousness of the crime you've committed against God to go and violate the faith of these Christians that are trying to follow him. To cause someone else to stumble and to sin, to, to cause a brother or sister to be derailed from faithfulness? Oh, don't do that. Take the millstone around your neck before you do that. But that's what Jesus is getting at. He wants us to see this morning how serious it is for you to cause a brother or a sister to stumble. He wants you to be deathly afraid of that. More afraid of that than you are afraid of dying a gruesome death. He wants you to be in fear. A holy reverent fear of causing your brothers and sisters to stumble. I want to draw out some obvious applications. Now, that is the exegesis. That's what this means. He's raising their awareness of the seriousness of this sin. And now I want to look at four applications, implications of this truth. With me? Let's look at number one. Application of this truth. You can cause another believer to stumble. Let's state the obvious. Jesus would not be saying this if it were an impossibility. He is saying this because His very own disciples who knew Him and trusted Him were in danger of committing this sin. He would not be warning this if it were not an option. And so what we need to hear this morning that it is possible for us to lead a brother or sister away from the truth and to cause them to fall into stumbling. We are a church that embraces the sovereignty of God and salvation. We believe the doctrines of grace. We celebrate them and we preach them. And let us never believe those to the degree that we forget human responsibility that the Bible also teaches. The Bible teaches that it is possible for us to cause others to sin, to be the cause of their stumbling. In fact, this is exemplified for us in the Bible. And I want to turn, ask you to turn to Galatians chapter 2. Because Peter himself will do this later on. He will be guilty of leading his own brothers and sisters astray. Go to Galatians chapter 2, verse 11. And Paul is writing about this account. Some people have called this account one of the most tense scenes in the New Testament where two pillars of the early church rise up and in conflict against each other. In verse 11, Paul writes, when Cephas, but when Cephas, that's, that's Peter. That's another name for Peter. When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Wow, Paul, the apostle, opposing Peter, the apostle. This is a remarkable scene. If you could have been a fly in the wall in that room, that would have been fun to watch. For before certain men came from James, James was the pastor of the Jerusalem church, a church primarily made of Jewish Christians. So before these men came from James, Peter was eating with the Gentiles, as it should be. He was demonstrating the power of the gospel to unite those people who were separate. Jews and Gentiles had nothing in common, but in the gospel they were brought together in unity. And Peter was exemplifying that unity by sharing a meal 
with His Gentile Christians. But look what happens. But when they came, these Jewish Christians from James's church, it says Peter drew back. He drew back and separated himself. Oh, here come the Jews. I don't want to be seen eating a meal with these Gentiles. They're unclean. And so still in his mind, he had the separation. And so he, he moved away from them, fearing the circumcision party. That is, fearing the Jewish Christians who had come in. Verse 13, and the rest of the Jews, watch this, the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him. In other words, hey, Peter the Apostle is separating from the Gentiles. So should we. So, so he's, he's doing it. So should we. So that even Barnabas, a, a name that's familiar to us, that you read about in Acts, that is a, is a great stalwart in the early church, but even Barnabas was led away by Paul's hypocrisy, or sorry, Peter's hypocrisy. It says there, look at the words, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Here are two believers having this conflict because Peter, though he was a leader, though he was a Christian, though he knew the Gospel, his behavior was leading many people into sin. His hypocrisy, the words are, led them astray. Listen, church, it is possible for you and I to be the cause of someone else's stumbling. Now, at the end of the day, every person will give account for their own sin. But we should not ignore the reality of what Jesus is saying, that there is a real uh, danger in causing others to stumble. Paul says, bad company corrupts good morals. Jesus said that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. People influence you, and you influence people. You are born, follow me here, you are born into a tapestry of relationships. You cannot help but be influential. Your involvement influences, your disengagement influences. The father who is present to disciple and train up and equip his kids is influential, and the absentee dad is influential, but in a bad way. You are always influencing. The question is not, am I influencing? The question is, how am I influencing brothers and sisters around me? And the question we must always ask is, is my influence that which causes people to be discouraged and to even stumble? Or does my influence cause people to be encouraged and to be faithful? So let's hear the warning and let's not just write it off and just say, well, everyone's responsible for their own issues. No, let's think differently. We can cause people to stumble according to what Jesus says and according to the testimony of the Scriptures. Second point. Second application. You should know the ways that can cause other believers to stumble. You should know the ways you can cause other believers to stumble. We're going to look at four of them. Number one, here's a way you can cause another believer to stumble. It is this, direct temptation. It is possible for Christians to take the side of Satan, to act like an ally of the enemy, and to act like an accuser or a tempter, and to call other Christians and tempt other Christians to disobey God. Listen, church, it's happened. 
that we can act almost like Potiphar's wife trying to lure Joseph into sin. Uh, It could be a friend who says, oh, just do it. Who's going to find out? It's a gossip who says, just tell me. I promise I won't tell anyone. It's the business owner who tells his fellow Christian, ah, just cut that corner. No one will know. No one will ask. Don't tell anyone. It's the old friend who says, oh, just leave your husband. He doesn't even deserve you anyway. It's these situations where we just set aside the Word of God and we begin operating according to worldly wisdom. Wisdom that just completely disregards what God has said. It is very possible that we, even as Christians, act like Satan and tempt believers, brothers, sisters, into sin through direct temptation. Second way that we can cause another believer to stumble is by the example of bad behavior. A bad example can cause another believer to stumble. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul is giving this example of meat that's been sacrificed to idols. You remember this chapter? And some of the Christians in that church were not going to eat the meat sacrificed to idols because they felt it was participation in idolatry, and so it violated their conscience. They weren't going to do it. So Paul's saying, hey, listen, if you, uh, there's really no demons involved here. If you want to eat it, you can. But listen, if you're not considering the conscience of the other believers, and you're just going to eat meat sacrificed to idols, and you're going to cause these other believers to stumble, then you're walking in sin, not love. And his point is that you ought to be very careful about how you live with respect to your Christian liberty. There's a lot of freedom in Christ, but if you, if you use your freedom and flaunt it around, to the degree that other believers who maybe have a different conscience than yours think that you're sinning by violating the Scriptures, what they feel God has taught, you're no longer walking in love. That's what the Bible's teaching, that your decisions to engage in certain behaviors, even though the Scriptures have not explicitly said that these are right or wrong, if you do so without any consideration about how it might affect other believers in Christ, then you can cause them to stumble. And that would then be sin and unloving to do so. A bad behavior, a bad actions, inconsiderate behavior can lead others to stumble. It could be a hindrance to their walk with the Lord. Here's a third way we can cause believers to stumble. It's found in 2 Timothy. I want you to turn there real quick. 2 Timothy chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 14 to 18. Paul is writing to Timothy to address this young pastor, Timothy, and to teach him how he is to pastor this church. And in, one, in this particular section, he's talking to him about how to deal with some of the false teachers that have been there and what to do about it. In verse 14 of chapter 2, it says, Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only, look at this word, ruins the hearers. Uh, you know, certain people who are just quarreling all the time about words, words, words. All it does is ruin the hearers of people who are paying attention. Verse 15, so what should you do? Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. And their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. Watch this. 
They are upsetting the faith of some. So here are these people getting caught into the whirlwind of this false teaching, and it says there that the, the, the faith is being ruined. There are people that are being upset. Their faith is being confused. They're wondering what's true. This poisonous false teaching is spreading like gangrene. And so what Timothy has to do is he has to, he has to handle the Word of God rightly. But here's the third way that we can cause believers to stumble. It is this, that you, you spread lies. You promote false ideas. Ideas are powerful, aren't they? Ideas shape the direction of the world. And if you spread false ideas about God, about Jesus, about the Christian life, about what we are to do, about what the Word of God is, it can lead to someone stumbling big time. Which is why James chapter 3, verse 1 says, those who teach will be judged more strictly. Don't go around spreading lies. Don't spread the fake news. Don't promote stuff that's not true. Be careful the kind of stuff you're spreading around, whether it's online or whether it's in person. And ensure that what you're saying is true because if you're spreading lies or misinformation, then the result could be that you're causing believers to stumble. And number four, another way you can cause a believer to stumble is more of a a passive way. These other ones are a little more active. The, The action of temptation or the action of bad behavior or the action of promoting a false idea. But here's a more passive way And I wonder if this is the one that will hit home with us the most that perhaps some of us might be guilty of. It is this. Withholding care that God intends for us to give. One way we can cause brothers and sisters in Christ to stumble is by not giving them the care God has called us to give to them. Not giving them the care that God has called us to give to them. The Bible teaches that as a church, we are responsible to care for one another's souls. And so when a member goes headlong into rebellion and sin, and we throw our hands up and say, well, that's their problem, guess who's guilty? Not just the person going into sin, but the entire church. If you want evidence of that, it's found in 1 Corinthians 5. Because in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul is rebuking the Corinthian church because they're putting up with a man who's living in gross sin. He's sleeping with his stepmom. And who gets rebuked in the letter? You know who gets rebuked? The church gets rebuked. Because the church is not doing anything about it. They're letting it happen on their watch. And that is the crime that they're committing is they are not giving the care that God intends for them to give. They're letting this man go into sin and they're basically saying, well, let him do his thing. Let let that happen. Who am I to step in? I don't want to get into his private life. That's not my place. And Paul says, you've got to mourn over that. You've got to be ashamed of yourself that you're tolerating that. And you've got to do something about that. You're basically approving of his sin by letting it happen on your watch. You can look at Hebrews chapter 3. Listen to this. The author says, take care, brothers. Take care. Be, be careful. Lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Did you catch what he's saying there? 
Be careful. Here's what I want you to be careful about, church. I want you to be careful that there's in any of you, any of you, an evil heart, an unbelieving heart that's getting hardened and it's leading you to fall away, that idea of stumbling away from the way that God has called us to do. Uh, I don't want you to be falling. So what should we do? What does the author say? Listen to this. But exhort one another daily. Encourage one another daily. Talk to one another daily. Admonish one another daily. Why? So that you won't be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So imagine this. you got a brother and a sister whose heart is sliding. It's maybe the very beginnings of apostasy. Or maybe the very beginnings of compromise. And that brother or sister is in your life. And you're aware that something's going on. Or maybe something doesn't feel right. Or maybe you're just trying to care for that person. Maybe they have the very beginning of the evil, unbelieving heart that leads someone to fall away. Maybe they have that. Festering. Questions that are not being unanswered. Doubts that are beginning to grow. The means that God has given that person to stay true is the church. It's the mechanism, God's means of helping that person remain faithful. So exhort one another every day. And if we don't do that, if we throw our hands up again and say, not my problem, we are guilty of not providing the care that that individual needs. And you could fast forward a few chapters in the Hebrews chapter 10 where he encourages us, let us consider, think about this, consider it, ponder it, meditate on it. Consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. In other words, let this sink in. This ought to cause us to pause and consider how we're living our Christian life. That your life could cause someone to stumble, even if you're not trying to cause that person to stumble. All it would take is you being passive, you stepping back, you letting it happen on your watch. All you have to do is do nothing. Like a man on the beach hearing someone cry for help as he drowns. You go back to reading your book because that's the lifeguard's responsibility, not yours. Horrible, wouldn't it be? For someone among us to be struggling so hard and no one to know? And no one to ask? And no one to encourage? No one to help? And so we could be guilty, and churches can be guilty of causing believers to stumble, at least being part of their stumbling, by doing nothing. Uninvolved, non-attending, responsibility-shirking, Lone Ranger members can do damage to the church of God. They can confuse what Christianity is. What it means to be a Christian. What it means to love one another and care for one another. So we ought to think about these things and know that there are ways that we can cause one another to stumble. That we all are like water in a lake. That if you throw a stone in, ripples affect the entirety of the lake. Some of us are affected more, some of us less, but all of us are influenced by the lives of one another. And we don't always feel it, it's not always obvious, but we are together, we are a family, we are a body. 
And so your problems are my problems and my problems are your problems. And so we weep with those who weep and we rejoice with those who rejoice and we help each other get home to heaven by aiding one another to help each other not stumble along the way. So here's our third application as we consider still the, this, this verse, this whole idea that we ought to not cause one another to stumble. This is the most obvious one. You should be very careful not to cause believers to stumble. Do we get that now? It's been said a lot. We should be very careful about this. Highlight that word careful. Consider how in your life you could accidentally do this or even purposely do this. Maybe passively allow it to happen. Let's just humble ourselves and say, could it be me? Could I accidentally be doing this? Unintentionally disobeying things God has called me to do? Maybe in my ignorance, I haven't taken responsibility in the way I'm supposed to? Or maybe more or less, it hasn't been in ignorance. It's just been more stubbornness. I don't want to get into that mess. That person's messy. Stay away from that one. Be very careful not to be part of the reason a brother or a sister stumbles. Consider who's sitting around you this morning. It could be a spouse. Some of you have children. Some of you have friends here, family. You don't need to ask yourself if you're being an influence. You just need to start, begin considering what kind of influence are you with these people? Does your lifestyle cast a shadow upon your profession of faith? Does your life give evidence to the reality of the faith you profess? Or is your profession of Christianity one more reason for the mockers to continue mocking? If someone were to study your life, Would they be led to a more proper and accurate view of Christianity? Or would they be given a distortion? Before, those of you who have a sensitive conscience feel too guilty, we are all to varying degrees distorting Christ because we are not Christ, we are sinners. So we're not talking about being perfect, but poor in spirit, humble, honest, sincere. Confessing sins as soon as you know them. Making things right as soon as you can. A genuine pursuit of God and godliness. Ask yourself this. If someone were to get caught up in the current of your life, would they drown in the riptide? Or would they be brought safely to shore? Number four, another application of our text that we ought to be very careful about not causing people to stumble. Let's think of the opposite or the the antithesis here. You should resolve to protect what Christ treasures. Protect what Christ treasures. If you think about what Jesus has said in this verse, he's making a threat because there's something incredibly value behind the threat. If I'm at the dinner table with my kids and um, and I tell something, say something like, "Hey, anyone who violates manners tonight's not getting any dessert." Um, it's not that I hate dessert, right? I like dessert. Um, what, I am, what am I doing? I'm protecting something. I'm protecting the dinner table from chaos. <laughs> I'm, I'm protecting the, the dinner table so we can have conversation. I'm trying to protect something that is valuable. 
Whenever there's an issue given by Jesus that's that's a threat, we can only see the negative. But but what is it that Jesus loves that he's protecting here? What is it that he's protecting by issuing this threat? And here's what it is. It's the precious faith of his children. That's what he loves. That is what he is threatening. Hey, you touch this? There's serious consequences. I I love my children. And let's just back up and see how much Jesus loves His precious children. God the Father in eternity past has said, I have a children that I want to save. I want to bring them to Myself. And I want to send You, Jesus, to come and live for them and die for them and redeem them. And the Son goes, yes, Father, I'm willing. I love them. I will go. And He is sent on behalf of the Father. And He goes on the mission He lives the perfect life none of us could live. And He offers Himself up as a sacrifice for the sins of His children. Why? Because He loves them. And no greater love has ever been seen on this planet. He loves the children that God has given to Him. And so He dies in their place, taking upon Himself their sin. The wrath that they deserve, He suffers. And He suffers on that cross. And on the third day after He dies, He rises again, claiming victory over death and hell and sin itself. And as the risen Lord, He is now calling His children, come home, come to Me, come and I'll be your Lord and I'll be your Savior. And He's ascended at the right hand of the Father. And you know what He's doing now? He's praying for us. He's our great High Priest. He always loves us. We are His bride, the church. We are precious to Him. And so that makes a lot more sense, right? When Jesus says, hey, listen, these are Mine. I purchased them with My blood. I bought them at great cost. Now, listen, you don't mess with their faith. You don't cause them to stumble. You don't tempt them away from the truth because I love them. He's guarding His children. And He's guarding their precious faith. And let me ask you, are you imitating Jesus in this regard? That you too find precious the faith of your brothers and sisters around you. That it is something you want to guard and protect and promote and cultivate. That you are against, aggressively against that which might harm the childlike faith of your brothers and sisters. This is, by the way, we talk about church membership. We practice church membership because we believe in church membership. It gives us the opportunity to formally say, I'm in with these things. It's an opportunity for us to say, I'm your responsibility. You're my responsibility. Let's commit to this together. I need you. You need me. We're going to help each other. We're not going to cause each other to stumble. We're going to make sure we're getting home safely to heaven. It's as if we're saying when we enter church membership, (laughs) or when we're receiving people in the membership, we're saying, your faith is precious. Jesus believes it's precious. I agree with Jesus. I find it precious too. It's precious to me. And I am taking responsibility to guard your faith, protect your faith, uphold your faith, cultivate your faith. And woe to me if I be the cause of your stumbling away. We can ask ourselves, how seriously do we take our responsibility for the faith of our brothers and sisters around us? Is it really our responsibility? I think our text points us in the direction to say, oh, yes it is. It is our responsibility. We do not want to be guilty of causing people to stumble. Are you then 
working to promote, protect, cultivate the faith of your brothers and sisters? Are you committed to them? Are you helping them so they do not stumble? Consider this very morning. How did you come to church this morning? Where did you park? What time did you show up? Where did you sit? Who did you speak to? Did you realize that in every one of those little decisions, there's compounded together a message that's being communicated? And that message is either I'm here for myself to get something I want and I need, or in every little decision that you've made, you've been saying, I'm here for God. And I'm here for you. Every little decision along the way, I have not just been barging my way in just to get what I think I need, but I have come to serve. I have come to lay my life down. I have come to bless. I have come to encourage. I've been, I'm here to strengthen. I'm here to pray for you, to encourage you, to lift you up, and to help you follow Jesus. I'm here consciously strategizing to offer others spiritual help. So often, and I confess this has been my own struggle as well, how often have we simply showed up only concerned about ourselves? The heart of what Jesus is getting at here is that you should take responsibility and be immensely concerned for the spiritual well-being of your brothers and sisters. So we close with this. Remember Hank? Not Frank. His spiritual drift. His lack of appetite for the things of God. His growing disengagement with the body of believers. As we close, forget about Him. Think about the people who are right here right now. Or maybe not here right now. Your brothers and sisters, God has put in front of you to care for, to help them like in Pilgrim's Progress, to come alongside them on their journey and help them get to the celestial city. If you've read that story, you're aware that there are many people who will join Christian on the journey. and Many of them are stumbling blocks, aren't they? Pliable and obstinate and the ones who lead them astray, formalist and hypocrisy, heedless, grim, Maul the giant, the worldly wise man. All come and join Christian on his journey for a little bit, and they all end up being a stumbling block for him. But there are some on that, in that story that, that come alongside, like faithful, just a good friend, willing to suffer for the good of his friend Christian, like hopeful, who leads him up to the river at the end to lead him across to enter in, and he goes with him. Or my favorite great heart, a brave, valiant, gentle, but firm leader who comes to the little precious family of Christiana and the children and walks with them all the way home and will not let them perish. My prayer, if we evaluate ourselves, we'd come to better understanding. What kind of character are you? If life is the story, are you the kind that shows up for a little bit, ends up being, little bit, ends up being kind of a distraction and then departs without helping anyone? Or do you find yourself being a faithful, a hopeful, or a great heart who says, I'm sent by God 
help these people get home safe. I pray that the Lord would raise up many like that, the faithfuls and the hopefuls, the great hearts who would see it as their heart's desire, do all they can to help their brothers and sisters not stumble, but get home to the celestial city safely. Let's pray. Father, it's a challenging message for us all. I personally am challenged by this. I I pray that we would all be challenged by this to evaluate the way we're living our lives, that we would come to see the responsibility you've given us for our brothers and sisters, and that we would be terrified of the prospect of causing someone to stumble being the reason for someone else's departure. Lord, guard us from that. And Lord, thank You that for the ways we have failed, and we all have, there is great grace and forgiveness of sins and restoration, and that we can learn and grow and be better at following You in this way. Help us, Lord, we pray. We cannot do it apart from Your help. We pray these things in Jesus' name.